Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. Welcome to episode seven of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily. Um, thank you guys for, for listening in. Took a little break last week uh, for spring break, which was lovely and much needed. A little bit of a news detox as well as a computer detox. Um, but we are back and better than ever. I also took, again, I took one week off and I completely forgot how to do this. I like walked into the studio and I was just like sitting here. I was like, what, what do I need to be doing right now? Like, what's going on? I like, I didn't get my headphones. I like, didn't do like, I just was like sitting here, like twiddling my thumbs. Like I have five minutes cause I'll just sit here. Like now I had things I needed to do. Anyway, that, that's, that's what happens when you get out of your routines. You forget how to do things. But anyway, welcome back. Happy Saturday morning. I hope you all are doing well. It is a lovely spring morning here. It's like 60 degrees outside. Um, I, yeah, they just, just as, just as some like general updates regarding where I am emotionally. Um, A, it is 60 degrees outside and it's lovely and I was walking here and it was great. And so that brought me some joy. I'm also extremely exhausted because again, I forgot because because I skipped one week, I forgot how truly early this show is, and they someone replaced the main chair in the studio with like a really really comfortable chair. So uh, if I fall asleep while recording this show, don't blame me. Blame the person who put the comfy chair here because now um, I'm not in a chair that I'm gonna fall out of. So anyway, that's a little that's a little callback joke to last week or two weeks ago when I fell out of the chair repeatedly. But anyway, last week was probably the worst possible week I could have taken off because now we just have like way too much to talk about to fit into one episode. So unfortunately, we did have to pare things down a little bit so I can only talk about a certain number of things. Can't talk about everything. Um, but basically what we're going to talk about this week, there's a lot that happened in Congress over the past two weeks. A lot of legislation that's passed, a lot of appointments that have not gone through or about to go through that I want to talk about. Um, yeah, plus just some other like random things that are hap- that have been happening in Congress that are just important that we talk about, process, get through, just because it, you know, it never ends and all these things build on each other. So it's important that we kind of have that like foundational knowledge going forward, especially because. Um, now that the funding process for fiscal year 22 has ended, we are now right back into the swing of things with funding for fiscal year 23. Um, so all the stuff we talked about last semester, this semester, it's all basically restarting from the very beginning. Um, so it's important to see kind of like how this fiscal year ended, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to do today. And with that being said, we're just going to jump right into it. So, first of all, federal funding. Um, So, last week, Congress finalized its federal funding package for 2022, nearly six months late. If you'll remember all of the potential government shutdowns and continuing resolutions and all the drama over reconciliation that we talked about last semester, that's the process that has now come to a close six months late. I believe the first deadline was October. I think that's six months ago. So that like October 15th deadline. Um, that, that was like one of the first things we talked about um, last semester. So like the beginning of this year. Um, so you can kind of get a gauge on all of the many, many things that have happened in the past six months since the this funding was supposed to be approved. Um, so the package is ultimately 
1.5 trillion dollars overall and then it's going to take us through october 1st which is the end of the 2022 fiscal year so now they're getting everything set for the 2023 fiscal year which they're going to have to hopefully have approved by october but guess what i don't think they will um so yeah if you thought we were going to be able to get away from talking about the budget process you were wrong it truly never ends um and ultimately this appropriations bill um it does give like increases in federal the, the main the main intention with this bill is to give federal funding to the agencies that are ultimately doing the work of um, putting the the legislation into practice so they do need to be funded regardless of what you know people want you to believe um, so this appropriations bill does give an increase in funding to many federal agencies uh, but the Biden administration initially wanted a lot more funding to certain agencies they did not get everything that they wanted of course this was kind of like an 11th hour deal a little bit behind the scenes um, and so they kind of just had to negotiate and come up with something because it was it was indeed the end of the line um, and of course they could just continue to pass continuing resolutions until the end of time um, but they really wanted this package it was very much a must pass piece of legislation um, so the omnibus bill as it has been referred to because that's what it is um, basically just everything possible going in one giant piece of legislation um, it was controversial as is everything that's going to be a repeated phrase throughout this episode um but basically it was it was specifically controversial because when the house voted on it uh the, it was i believe it was 2700 pages the bill the full like the full language of the bill because again it funds the entire federal government and all you know x number of agencies so it's like it's also like a lot of legal jargon so i don't i don't know but yeah it was a very very long bill and the final language of the bill was released at 1.30 in the morning, and then all of the representatives had to vote on it in the morning, um, so it did not give them a lot of time to read the bill or kind of like stew over what happened during the negotiations process, um, which, you know, was a little bit twofold. Um, one, they straight up didn't have time to uh, kind of have a, a, a more potentially ethical process with the negotiations, have it a little bit, have it be a little bit more open door. Um, but also, you know, maybe that was kind of Nancy Pelosi's thing of like, well, we'll just shove this through really fast. And I know that you're not going to like some of these things that we did in the negotiations, but it is what it is. And there's nothing we can do about it now because it is a must pass piece of legislation and we got to just get, get through with it. Um, it's also, yeah, sure. They didn't have a lot of time to read the bill, but there wasn't like anything super duper shocking, um, that either was in the bill or not in the bill. There was a couple things that were excluded that a lot of Democratic representatives wanted in the bill that they were annoyed about, but they weren't annoyed about it enough that they weren't going to vote to to fund the government. Um, like, there was no way that they were going to kind of sit back and not 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 go through with this vote, uh, even though they didn't get all of the things that they wanted, which, again, was probably somewhat purposeful, but also just somewhat uh, a matter of, of logistics. The negotiations weren't done. The vote has to happen. Here we go. Um, and again, what what was the alternative at this point to funding the government, more continuing resolutions, more chaos? I don't think that anybody wanted that at this point. But I'm not going to go through some of the some of the big kind of debates that have been happening with the bill um, and kind of what some of the main controversies controversies. Wow, it is early in the morning. Controversies were 
uh, in terms, oops, excuse me, uh, were in terms of um, Democratic, Republican fighting negotiations, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, first of all, there was a an argument between defense spending and non-defense spending. It's kind of a typical debate between Democrats and Republicans, where Republicans want to kind of focus most of the appropriations, um, most of the federal funding on the defense budget, on um, federal agencies that are concerned with defense. Um, and then Democrats are more concerned with uh, increasing discretionary funding to social programs and to those kinds of agencies rather than defense funding. So, you know, increasing, increasing funding to um, the HHS and organizations like that rather than the Pentagon and DHS and all those things. Um, so ultimately, they, they both got things that they can brag about. The Democrats got a 6.7% increase in non-defense discretionary spending, and the Republicans got a $42 billion increase for defense spending, and that includes an 11% increase from the previous fiscal year for the Department of Homeland Security. So they're all able to get things that they wanted to talk about. Um, I don't know what percent 42 billion is, but it's such a big number. It's such a big number that they got $42 billion more for defense spending across all these different agencies, but we're just not, we're just really not going to get into it. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's like a, that's like a pretty typical, um, Republican versus Democrat conversation. At least it's supposed to be. Um, so anyway, that, that was pretty typical, but again, they both kind of got what they wanted at that point. Um, and of course, there's nothing Democrats can really do regarding defense spending because they do, they can't, you know, look weak on, weak on war, blah, 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 um, look weak on defense because then it backfires on them and blah, blah, blah. We don't need to get into it. Uh, everyone, everyone understands why Democrats can't, uh, pull, fully push back against the military industrial complex because it's a major part of the American culture and also the um, military industrial complex helps them financially. So anyway, that's like a tangent for another day. But anyway, um, second piece of controversy that we're going to get into a little bit more later uh, is COVID-19 funding. Uh, and the Democrats really wanted a pretty big chunk of money from this bill to go towards um, COVID, you know, funding the funding COVID measures on a federal level, federal level, um, and much of the money was taken out of the bill, although the Democrats are currently working on an independent COVID funding bill that's that's currently being pushed, uh, but that's what we're going to talk about later. Uh, and they wanted $15 billion at least to supplement funding for um, federal coronavirus measures, but kind of this, like again, this 11th hour decision that was made behind closed doors, they ultimately decided... Um, to take that provision out of the bill because they did not think that they were going to gain enough um, Republican support in the Senate to push that spe specific provision through. That was something that the Democrats were pretty mad about, again, because it happened behind closed doors. The bill was released at 1.30 in the morning, and then by the time the final language was released, there was nothing the typical kind of rank-and-file Democrat could do uh, to kind of get that federal funding for COVID measures back on the table. Um, and so now it's kind of going to be an additional uphill battle of, well, we thought that because it was attached to the larger funding bill, we were going to be able to get this chunk of money through. But now that it's not attached to um, the larger bill, how are we going to um, actually 
get this piece of legislation through. So that's kind of an interesting conversation. We're going to get into it again a little bit more later. So the third thing, now this, if, if this doesn't make you want to scream, I literally don't know what will make you scream. Um, so another major provision um, that people are talking about is legacy riders. Um, and it's basically just, there's a, there's a lot of different kind of, you know, pieces, like in, individual pieces of legislation that have uh, limited the federal government's ability to um, fund kind of more controversial F, like controversial um, issue areas, such as, you know, the Hyde Amendment with, with, with funding abortion um, measures, and there's similar pieces of, of legislation with that with, with marijuana, and basically they were not able to keep those provisions out of the omnibus bill. So a lot of those provisions, unfortunately, do still stand. Um, so one important thing here, the, the Hyde Amendment and, abor and abortion is important, and of course so it's, it's important to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on the show recently. However, the thing I want to talk about in specific here is the, um, the, 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 there's a portion of the bill here that bars the legalization of recreational marijuana in D.C., despite the fact that there was a vote to legalize it in 2014, which means once again, which I just, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to take that back because I don't think that I was super clear with that. The federal government said that Washington, D.C. is not allowed to have legalized marijuana despite the fact that the local city council had a vote and legalized it in 2014. So now they're going back and saying, oh, no, you can't actually do that. Why? Why? Tell me why they can't do that. Tell me why. I don't understand. So here we go. It's, it's, it's another situation of technically Washington, D.C. having home rule, but because they don't have federal, you know, they don't have federal representation and their budget ultimately isn't controlled by themselves, they are able to, the federal government is allowed to play political games with the city of Washington, D.C. And that's just crazy. It's wild to me. And I just don't understand any kind of um, argument from people, I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess, I understand the argument of not making D.C. a state because it's not big enough, which doesn't really make sense, but, you know, whatever, whatever, I guess. I guess in some kind of convoluted world, I understand the argument of not making D.C. a state. What I don't understand is the fact, and any argument that, that, that says that the federal government should be allowed to control what's happening in the city of Washington, D.C. When it's clear, when, you know, representatives and senators spend maybe, maybe a third of their time in D.C. They're not D.C. locals. They don't generally make an effort to be part of D.C. culture. They don't know Washington, D.C. How are they able to legislate on D.C.? Not to mention the fact that they aren't elected by the people of Washington, D.C. So it's, and it's, mm, yeah. I don't know, it just makes me so angry because it's just, it is, it really is, it's not only is it taxation without representation, but it's people legislating over the express wills of the people there. And that is not democracy. And it's just the, the, the dismissal of the people of Washington, D.C. truly makes me crazy as a person who's lived here for a year and a half, who is not registered to vote here, makes me mad. Um, makes me mad. But anyway, all I know is pain, and I don't understand if this makes any sense. But 
that's what kind of all I want to talk about on that. I just, I just, I was re- reading this in an article and I, I read the headline of it. Um, someone tweeted about it um, when, when all this was happening and they're like, Hey, did you guys know that there's a piece of, um, you know, there's, there's like a provision in, in this legislation that expressly goes against what the people of Washington DC want. And they're trying to, they're trying to legislate the city of Washington DC. Um, and I was like, that, that can't possibly be true. And I kind of just like, ignored it and moved on. And then I was reading, I was, you know, I was doing research for this, for this episode. And I was like, oh, this is, a, this is a real thing that the federal government is just able to do because, you know, the reach of home rule only extends so far. And the reach of the D.C. Council only extends so far. And the reach of the mayor only extends so far. Because we don't have, A, because we don't have that federal representation. And B, because um, the federal government does play such a strong such a large role in the actual development of our budget and policy and so they're able to again play political games with a very large city they're able to just kind of mess with things as they want without consideration of um what the people actually want so anyway that being said um next thing that was kind of interesting is that they managed to reauthorize the violence against women act for the first time in a decade I also just want you to know that I wrote in my notes, they actually managed to reauthorize violence against women. Forgot to write the word act. So congratulations to the U.S. Congress for authorizing violence against women. You did it. I'm proud of you. Anyway, um, so there was, you know, they, they've been struggling to reauthorize this piece of legislation for a while um, because of some controversial gun control provisions, um, but they were ultimately dropped in an effort to gain bipartisan approval in the Senate, which as we've discussed ad nauseum, um, is a unfortunate necessity of our current political climate. So um, the the reauthorization isn't as strong on um, gun control uh, legislation. So it's, it's, it doesn't have as many restrictions on um, it. Doesn't it just like doesn't have as like strong of um, what's it called? I guess punishments if if there are um, guns involved in the violence against women but again they they were managed they managed to reauthorize it overall which was a pretty pretty important political achievement that they were able to reauthorize that specific piece of legislation um and then finally and you know most blah 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 um there's still additional border wall funding that has not been used and the democrats wanted to kind of reauthorize repurpose the funds for border security technology, IT modernization, environmental mitigation efforts, a bunch of other things that have to do with immigration. Um, and of course, the a lot of the Republicans wanted to continue to have it be used for um, building the wall. Um, and so ultimately, that was kind of a fight they were, they were in. I'm not sure if it was like, I'm not exactly sure how it was settled, um, but I think that it did kind of go into just like an immigration pot um, that can kind of be used kind of more discretion, used with discretion by those federal agencies. Um, but I do not think that the wall is going to continue to be funded. Not, you know, not, not for the least reason that it would not look good for midterms coming around the corner. I, I get, bet you guys are excited about me not talking about that anymore because I am, although we're going to be talking about it forever. Um, Anyway, guys, it's really early. I'm so sorry if I'm acting crazy right now. Um, anyway, moving on. That's that's kind of all I wanted to talk about with federal funding. Um, but main thing is that it's there. We're finally through. Um, 
did not do what the Democrats really wanted it to do overall. Uh, I think they really wanted it to be this like a huge agent of change within the federal government. I don't think that they got that far, um, but they were able to get a lot of the things that they wanted. Um, so I think that it's, you know, it's all well and good and they've got another fight coming up. So I'm sure they're, they're better armed, better equipped for um, what they need to be doing for fiscal year 23. So we'll continue to talk about the appropriations process there as it moves forward. But now I want to talk about, um, I mentioned earlier on that they are working on a COVID, independent COVID funding bill. Um, and so this is a new house battle. Now that the omnibus bill has gone through, um, with COVID funding, as experts are saying that more money is needed to kind of shore up the progress that's been made over the past two years. Um, but now Congress needs to figure out a way to get that funding through in a way that is um, not attached to the omnibus bill. Again, the omnibus bill was a must-pass piece of legislation. The, this independent COVID funding bill is not a must-pass piece of legislation. Um, and so it kind of gives a lot of room for senators and for representatives to kind of push back against the legislation and to say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not voting for that. Um, and again, get, getting rid of this piece of, of funding in the omnibus bill did cause an internal dispute within the party. And this line from Nancy Pelosi makes me laugh because it's such a Nancy Pelosi line. I don't know. Um, but people were complaining about all the stuff that didn't get into the omnibus bill. And she said, quote, you want to tell me about what you didn't get? Don't tell Noah about the flood. And I'm sure that that's from somewhere, but it just made me laugh because it's such a Nancy Pelosi thing to say. Because, um, again, a lot of things didn't get in because when they, they expected this federal budget to be much larger than it is. Um, and, of course, the spending bill was, was, was much more constricted than they initially assumed because of all of all of the things we've talked about for the past six months of this show. So... Um, Pelosi has stated that she sees that there is there is a pathway to getting funding through Congress and to the president, but it seems that Democrats are, are kind of looking for some non-traditional pathways to get the funding through. Again, can they guarantee the funding now that it's divorced from the must-pass piece of legislation? Especially, again, because Republican swing voters um, like Mitt Romney in the Senate are nervous about delivering kind of a blank check regarding COVID, um, and they they're, a lot of them are concerned that there hasn't been enough specifics about what the White House actually wants to do with the COVID funding, um, because I, I guess the White House hasn't released like a specific plan of like, we're going to spend $5 on this and $10 on that. Um, and so they're concerned that kind of, again, like writing the White House a blank check to just like deal with COVID um, is going to kind of backfire on them in some way. Um, so that's that's the that's their concern. So they kind of, again, they want the White House to be a little bit more explicit with what is going on with the money. Um, and then they also want the COVID money to come from repurposed funds. So they want, you know, they want the, um, the Democrats to take COVID money from other agencies kind of, or like take, you know, the HHS budget and reappropriate a lot of that money so that it all goes to the NIH and the CDC and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, of course, if it's, it's, if it's a new chunk of money, that's going to create some kind of controversy, and it's also going to kind of garner less bipartisan support. Um, plus, you know, the, 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 of course, one of the main issues, as always, is if they are able to come to a bipartisan agreement in the Senate, is that agreement going to hold up to scrutiny in the House? 
here we go back to the same controversy or the same, you know, the same conversation that we were having with Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill is can an agreement that, um, you know, that in a, in a kind of a bipartisan middle of the road agreement that was made in the Senate um, kind of get through the House? Can the Progressive Caucus kind of put their differences aside, maybe, and pass this piece of legislation and kind of continue? You know, because it's, it's one of those things where they've compromised over. I mean, I think everyone has compromised a lot, but I think the progressives are specifically very sick of compromising, especially because, you know, maybe not on, on this specifically. I don't know if this is going to kind of rear its head. Um, but if you'll, you know, send, send your brain back to when we were talking about Build Back Better and reconciliation and Build Back Better and um, infrastructure. They basically, the, the only reason that infrastructure got passed is because the progressive said, fine, you know what, here's the deal. We'll vote now to approve the infrastructure bill, but you guys have to promise that we are going to pass Build Back Better as soon as um, the markup comes from the OMB. As soon as the markup comes, we're voting on it as long as it doesn't, you know, uh, you know expand the deficit too crazily. Like, we're going to vote on this. We're going to get it done. And so they agreed on that, and they managed to pass infrastructure, and then, of course, as we know, Build Back Better did not end up getting passed, which means that the progressive wing of the party was a little cheated, a little cheated, a little bit messed with, um, and of course, this this specific dispute hasn't, I don't think, specifically reared its head, but I do think that it's going to become an issue in the future where um, progressive Democrats say, look, like, we're not compromising anymore. We're not going back on our on our word anymore. You told us. You promised that we were going to get Build Back Better through. Build Back Better has not been through. Like, we are not going to pass all this legislation until we've made some some form of actionable change. Um, like, I would not be surprised if there is if there is that kind of conversation happening near near in the near future. And I do think that maybe this kind of COVID funding is going to going to be where that conversation does happen, where they say, no, we're not going to pass this like watered down version that the Senate has agreed on when we have the ability, uh, when we had the ability with the omnibus bill to be a lot more aggressive with the funding that we want um, for this bill. So I, I do think that that's going to be an interesting um, conversation to be had. And again, I would not be surprised if the Progressive Caucus does kind of play some some political games here. Um, maybe not games, but does kind of try to try to try to push their 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 negotiating power a little bit farther because they do have they do have a pretty significant amount of influence. They have ninety plus members in the um, ninety plus members in the house, and they do therefore have a lot of you know political clout and political power. Um, so. Anyway, that's that's all I want to talk about there. But I do think that it's interesting. I think this COVID funding package will be really interesting. If they have, if if the Democrats have the political clout in the House and the Senate to get this bill through, I think that'll be really important. I also don't, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not I, I, with COVID things. You know how it is. I know it's important. I know that we should be talking about it. But at some point, I just get a little bit COVIDed out, um, and so of course have kind of stopped talking about it and stopped doing a little bit of research on it. That being said, I don't see an issue with 
the Democrats kind of coming up with a more specific plan in terms of, we are going to use 10% of the money to do this, 10% of the money to do that. If it's going to attract some swing voters in the Senate, um, then do it. Like, get it done. Um, I don't see the, the, the negative consequences of caving on that specific thing. But anyway. Um, cool. So, other pieces of legislation that have passed in the House in the past two weeks. Um, we've got some kind of two, two very um, interesting kind of, maybe, I don't know if exciting is the right word for the second one, but just very interesting pieces of racial discrimination um, legislation that has gone past, gone through Congress. Um, so first, that literally just passed yesterday through the House, is the Crown Act. Uh, and Crown is actually an acronym. This is my favorite part of government. This is my favorite part of government. It's bills that have a name that like the 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 like the actual like it's an acronym but the, the the acronym actually works for what the bill is about like the patriot act like you know no one likes the patriot act but like it's amazing that patriot is an acronym but it also is the word patriot like that's that's some next level creativity i'm obsessed with that but anyway the crown act crown stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair i love it and because crown and it's heads about hair oh amazing amazing whoever came up with that needs a raise probably not just because they came up with it but also just because they probably need a raise because it was probably some like a random legislative assistant somewhere um and anyway i'm obsessed with them um so it was just passed by the house and of course it has to go through the senate which we'll see how that goes um but anyway the legislation is intended to counteract discrimination in the workplace um based on natural hair texture or protective hairstyles. Um, and so, yeah, the bill would make natural hair discrimination uh, treated as if it were a race or national origin um, discrimination under federal civil rights law. Um, so it would basically just be like a, a marker of, if you discriminate based off of natural hair, it basically implies that you are discriminating against them based on race. Um, and so it was very kind of cool, cool process that the... The Crown Coalition Partners are 85 different um, organizations that have been working to pass statewide bans on hair discrimination and then have also been doing advocacy on the national level. So there are several states where uh, a kind of like a state version of the same piece of legislation has gone through. I think I think I read like 13, 12 or 13 states also have this piece of legislation. Um, so just very cool. Oh, excuse me, I'm yawning. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry that I just yawned. We're moving on. We're 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 moving right on. Um, anyway, just like a very cool like kind of process of of all of these stakeholders coming together to to support this piece of legislation. Um, very interesting statistics: about a third of Black children in majority white schools have faced race-based hair discrimination, and 86% of those children have experienced it by the age of 12. Um, and it's crazy, it's crazy to me to discriminate based on hair for, for obvious reasons. Um, but like primarily, you know, hair is, hair is part of your physical identity. You can't change, you know, you can't change what grows out of your head. Um, and so it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, well, it's, it's also like horrifying that it's, you know, it's, it's basically the, the, the criminalization of what's growing out of your head. Um, and 
it's it's upsetting that that discrimination happens and it's it's especially crazy that it's happening so much within the within the educational sector like so much of the the focus of this discrimination um kind of about the the focus of the legislation itself has been um kind of focusing on schools where a lot of that again as children where a lot of that discrimination occurs and we've we've talked about education we've talked about all these things in the past but it's crazy to me that you know schools are specifically criminalizing you know young black children for their natural hairstyles because natural it's just the way that their hair is like i don't know what to tell you um and i think that it's you know it's it's something that i remember i remember talking about this issue and i feel like i remember talking about the crown act when it was going through the state legislature in new jersey and i might totally be misremembering that so like don't quote me on any of these things but um i remember talking about it with um other kids in my ap lang class so we were talking we were doing an education unit and again like again this is the first time i've said it ap lang is a wild class tangentially like a truly wild class so like what did we talk about what did what didn't we talk about in that class let's be real but anyway we were talking about you know educational discrimination and we were talking about um kind of like those feedback loops that get i don't well yeah we were we were talking about these feedback loops that get created um within educational discrimination and this like plays right into it right as as a young person going into school and being told that your identity is not appropriate this goes right back to the the don't say gay like pieces of legislation right when you're told that your identity is not appropriate for a classroom setting i would say it's going to turn you off from going to school it's going to turn you off from participating it's going to turn you off from being at all engaged in your academics and then let's talk you know when once you once you disengage from academics m- before the age of 12 for a lot of these kids you know how is that going to affect you know the the choices that you make going forward um and it's it, these are the, there's there's the same like cyclical forms of discrimination that exist for black people that exist for women um that it's just like when you expect to experience discrimination you're less likely to put yourself out there you're less likely to go after certain opportunities um and again when you're told that your identity your identity who you are is not appropriate like is not seen as as appropriate is not seen as like school safe i don't know I don't think that that's going to do great things for your for your mental or physical well-being. Um and so anyway, I just think this this piece of legislation is very cool. Um cuz it does try to kind of like remove those negative feedback loops. However, a lot of experts have been talking about this like very interesting distinction between legislative anti-discrimination and then cultural discrimination because you know, this is this is a little bit tangential just kind of a conversation about like pol- what policy can and cannot do in general um but you know policy can change the law but po- you can't legislate people's minds you can't legislate people's behaviors um in a way that that kind of truly affects culture i guess um and so there's going to you know an interesting conversation being had right now about this legislation which with like awesome this legislation is banning this discrimination but like also why did this discrimination exist in the first place like why was natural hair seen as inappropriate why was it seen as unprofessional why was it seen as messy um and so of course this piece of legislation doesn't actually address those cultural issues but it does address the the you know it doesn't address the root impact but it does address the outcome um so even though the root 
the root issue still exists, that discrimination still exists on a cultural level, now there's going to be less ways for that cultural bias to actually affect real people. Which is like an interesting conversation about policy. Um, and again, about what policy can and cannot do and what it should and shouldn't be doing. Um, it's also very interesting to see this kind of debate play out on within the House of Representatives because it is a... Um, you know, it's one of those, it's just like an interesting piece of like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like, an, it's, I don't know how to articulate this, and I didn't, I don't think I articulated it well in my notes, but it's, it's an interesting piece of legislation to look at through the lens of the people, I guess, quote unquote, because um, the point of the House of Representatives, of course, is, I guess, I guess, theoretically, the point of the House of Representatives is to kind of, again, allow those conversations to take place on a national level, right? So we see these debates happening with 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 like with the House of Representatives who are a reflection of the voices of the people. So how are uh you know these these debates happening and how is it a reflection of the cultural and public debate regarding this legislation? So how are people comporting themselves when they're talking about this issue and how does this reflect the people that voted for them? How does this reflect the people who didn't vote for them, you know, just generally, how does the, um, how does, how does the electorate, how is the electorate reflected in this kind of, like, personal race-based debate? Um, and I think just, like, a very poignant, like, going right on to my next point, a very poignant example of this is Lauren Boebert, once again, haunting our nightmares, um, and she, when they were first, um, working through this bill in committee, she came out against it and calling it the, quote, bad hair bill. So here we go with, like, our, our high-level governmental body, you know, doing doing this work to, you know, to remove discrimination, all these different things. And, of course, representatives taking it down to, like, the lowest possible common denominator. And, again, I just think it's an interesting reflection of, the, of, of like, culture and, and public opinion and how that is reflected in this supposedly like higher level debate on policy issues. So anyway, she called it the bad hair bill. She is terrible and I really dislike her, but again, it's just like an interesting depiction of is this what real people think? Is this is this a reflection of our cultural attitudes towards this piece of legislation? I don't think so generally, but maybe it is. Um, and then of course there's the actual full outcome of the bill, which is that the, the measure did pass, but it passed 235 to 189, with only 12 Republicans choosing to cross the aisle. 12. 12 Republicans choosing to cross the aisle on this piece of legislation. Um, which, like, you just heard me talk for the past, I don't know, seven minutes about this, this bill. Like, what what is the argument against supporting this piece of legislation? Ultimately, what they did say was that... Um, Republicans have claimed that, you know, this, this form of discrimination is covered, quote-unquote, um, by other por forms of anti-discrimination legislation. But, like, discrimination of this form has still been happening, and there's no process for redress. So, it's like, actually, it's not covered. I don't know what to tell you, but it's simply not covered. Um, and, of course, Jim Jordan, whatever, another person who, like, who cares, right, um, has been saying that the House should focus on legislation 
that um, is relating to inflation or gas prices instead. And again, in my notes, I have written, literally, shut up, shut up. So that's how I feel about that. Just, just be quiet, just be quiet. I don't wanna hear from you anymore. Um, so again, Republicans, I mean, Republicans have been attempting to, to block, because, okay, here's the other thing on this. There, there are arguments that, once again, suspending all disbelief, there is an argument that, okay, fine, there is a lot of anti-discrimination, like anti-racial discrimination legislation. Maybe this form of discrimination is covered. Maybe we, instead of having an entirely new bill, we amend old civil rights legislation to kind of make this specific provision clearer. Sure, maybe I understand that argument. But that is very, it's very passive. It's basically saying, yeah, I'm not interested in this bill just because I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that we need to go through all this work to have the bill. But the way that the Republicans acted in terms of this bill was anything but passive. Like they actively attempted to block um, and they were able to block an attempt to fast track this bill last month. So they, they have been actively trying to make sure that this bill does not get on the table. And that's not a passive like, oh, I think that there's other legislative things that we can do here. That's I do not want this bill to pass for completely different reasons. I do not want this bill to pass because I do not believe in this bill. And again, I just talked for several minutes about what this bill actually means. Like, what's the legitimate reason to have a outward-facing, like, specific, like, active dislike of this bill? Like, you, like, wanting to push back against this bill actively instead of passively. Like, if you don't want to vote for the bill, don't vote for the bill. I guess. I guess. Um, if you don't, if you don't think that it's a necessary piece of legislation, I guess there's like nothing that I can do to, to convince you of it. However, don't push against the bill actively unless you're going to come out and you're going to actually say what you mean, because these people are not saying what they're mean, what they mean. And what they want is, is discrimination. What they want is, is forms of legalized discrimination and criminalization of people's identities. But anyway, that's neither here nor there, I guess. I suppose. So, anyway, on to the next piece of legislation. Um, oh, wow. I just realized that I have a lot to talk about and not a lot of time, and I've done it again, again! It's been one week, and I've forgotten how to manage my time. Here's the issue. I thought I was on page five of my notes, and I was on page four. It's okay. We're gonna get through it. We're gonna talk, talk about what we, need, what we need to talk about. If we need to skip some things, we will talk about them in the future. Okay, anyway. Anti-lynching bill also made it through the House, um, and it, it was passed last week, and it makes lynching a federally designated hate crime, um, and it's a new form of legislation. They had a similar bill in 2021 that I don't think they ended up voting on for some reason, um, but anyway, that piece of legislation had a maximum sentence of 10 years, and now under this piece of legislation, there is a maximum penalty of 30 years, plus fines for anyone conspiring to commit an act of lynching that causes death or injury. Um, and so the House ultimately approved this bill 422 to three. Three people voted against it. Let me let me repeat that. Three people voted against the anti-lynching bill, um, which is just crazy. But anyway, and there was also eight members who didn't vote, um, which is like not super crazy considering, again, this bill's fairly uncontroversial except for the three people that didn't that voted no, and those three vote you know, no votes were Andrew Clyde, Thomas Massey, and Chip Roy. 
Great. And they had a similar argument to the Crown Act, which is that they said, oh, but it's already covered by state laws. Like, we don't need to talk about this. Like, we don't need a federal piece of legislation. We don't need to make it a federal hate crime because it's already discussed by state legislation. Shh, be quiet. Be quiet. Anyway, um, and then there's also, I believe it was Chip Roy, who said that it was just a way to, quote, to, to promote the, quote, woke agenda. So, like, if you, if by woke agenda you mean wanting people to not get murdered because of their race, then, like, yes, you are indeed correct. You figured us out. You figured it out. This is the woke agenda. Not wanting people to get murdered and wanting people to, you know, experience consequences if they do, in fact, murder. Um, but, you know, this is just, this is it. This is two examples in a row of, like, several Republicans um, not really caring about racial injustice. And it's crazy to me that the three people who voted no in this legislation still have jobs and will continue to have jobs after this. Like, this this no vote is not going to affect them in any substantial way. And that is crazy to me. Like, that is wild to me that that is, that is the case. Um, I just don't, I don't, that is, it is something that I do not understand. Um, and it does truly make me crazy. Um... But anyway, that's all. I just wanted to mention that that bill has gotten passed um, and again mention kind of the interesting racial rhetoric that has been used in the House over the past um, couple weeks on these pieces of legislation. Um, you know, just always being aware of the dog whistles, always being aware of what's truly going on and making sure that you're aware of um, how people are saying what they're saying and why they're saying it um, and whether they actually just think that it's a legislative non-priority or whether they actively, you know, are putting in effort to, um, you know, make this legislation go away and for what reason, you know? So that being said, we're going to move on to the Senate and talk about some nominations. So first of all, Sarah Bloom Raskin um, withdrew her nomination this week to be vice chair of the Federal Reserve after several key senators, including one Joe Manchin stated that they would not vote in favor of her nomination. And this was a pretty sticky nomination fight. We've been talking about it for a couple weeks, kind of in the background. Um, but Republicans in committee really did wanted to make sure that she did not advance. Um, she basically, they basically said that they didn't like her work in the private sector, and they thought that her writing proved that she would be, quote, too aggressive in policing climate risks within the financial system and would then overstep the unelected central bank's boundaries. Um, and they kind of thought that she was going to start legislating on climate issues um, through her role in the Federal Reserve. Um, and Biden, you know, you know, accepted her, her, um, I don't know, she, she, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the language is here, but she wrote a letter basically saying, pull me out of consideration, this is not going to work, and Biden accepted the letter, um, and basically said that she had faced, quote, baseless attacks from industry and conservative interest groups, um, and basically once Manchin nixed her, it was really over, you only need, there's a carve-out in the filibuster for, um, nominations for appointments, as we've talked about, um, but you, so you only need 50 votes in the Senate to approve a nomination. But given, again, the razor-thin margin in the Senate that we've talked about over and over again, um, it's just not viable to consider that, like, an R is going to cross the aisle when Manchin won't even, like, line up with his own party on things like this. Um, and of course, oh man, an environmental, um, someone who has, you know, ties to the environment, 
not having Joe Manchin's support? What do you mean he's an oil tycoon? I don't understand what you mean. Um, so, once again, just Joe Manchin causing problems and being annoying for no particular reason. Um, I know what the particular reason is. He doesn't want to get rid of the coal mines. Anyway, so, uh, and the blocking of, of Raskin's nomination has kind of had larger consequences because it's also held up um, nominations, other nominations for the Fed, including Jerome Powell, who's being nominated for his um, second term as Fed chair. Um, and then also um, has had some, some, some other lo larger implications of whether or not um, Republicans are going to be able to hold up um, other nominations in a similar way. Um, additionally, kind of an interesting, uh, has some interesting, interesting implications on kind of policy momentum within Washington and within the Biden administration, because they did put forward a fairly large name for this role, and it was a fairly large name that kind of then did get smacked out of the sky. It's only really a large name if you're within the Beltway, if you're in kind of like the Washington um, community, because of course Sarah Bloom Raskin is the wife of Representative Jamie Raskin, um, and so there's kind of that interesting kind of dichotomy there. Um, and so, of course, it was a fairly large name that they were unable to to shove through. And I think they wanted this to be somewhat high profile. Um, both the Biden administration wanted this role to be high profile. And then also the um, senators who were pushing back against it also wanted it to be high profile, more likely to, to end up the news than some random you know, political appointee. Also, tangentially, this whole thing is literally just a West Wing plot. Straight up, just pulled straight out of the West Wing almost word for word, but that is neither here nor there. Anyway, moving on. Um, the SCOTUS nomination hearings will be ha starting, I believe, this week. Um, and so Katanji Brown Jackson has been meeting with members of the Senate Judiciary Committee um, and kind of has been starting to kind of like, do, you know, do, put out all those feelers and do all those like necessary things. Um, she has already been fielding criticism from the GOP. Shock. Um, she is, they've stated that they're planning on questioning her on the handling of sex-related offenses, um, and they basically have su suggested that she was sympathetic to sex offenders, um, and specifically with child pornography cases, because she gave quote-unquote light sentences to those offenders when she was a judge. Um, the Democrats have been com coming back pretty aggressively against those claims, basically saying that they have been, you know, consistent with... Um, you know, consistent with different measures and, and all of her um, decisions and her, her judgments have been upheld by other courts and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to me, of course, this, I mean, ooh, they're talking about sex. Ooh, that's going to end up in headlines. Ooh. Um, and so they're just trying to come up with something interesting to throw in the headlines, try to generate some chaos, um, just trying to generally stop this process, muck, muck it up in any way possible. Um, and I really... I don't think it's going to work. I think the SCOTUS nomination is just slightly too important for even a Joe Manchin to sway on, um, especially when there is very little legitimate criticism to get her on. Like, they'll they'll try to question her about all these things, but I doubt that it's going to amount to much of anything. And, of course, you know, we're just, we're just continuing our list of, of annoying Republicans in this episode, but Josh Hawley was the one who kind of brought all these criticisms forward. Um, and uh, Dick Durbin, who is also on the Judiciary Committee, said in a quote, Holly now thinks he's discovered something. And I think that was just an excellent smackdown. I'm just like, oh, he thinks he thinks he found something. Good for him. He thinks he found something. Um, but anyway, 
We do not have enough time to talk about the Ukraine, but there is a lot going on there. Rapid fire. House has been working on authorizing additional funding to Ukraine. Of course, an uphill battle, as is everything. Uh, The House is currently working through updating Russian trade legislation. That's going to be a little bit of a fight just in terms of, I don't think it's going to be a fight in terms of what, you know, whether or not it happens, but just like what the final form is going to look like. And then again, there's still a very small but loudmouth faction of Republicans who are siding with Russia. Um, Most recently, Madison Cawthorn um, from North Carolina called Zelensky a, quote, thug, uh, to the dismay of the entire Democratic Party and probably like 98% of the Republican Party, um, including senators from his own state, which is when you know you've really screwed up. When your people from your own state are like, oh, people from your own state and your own party are like, oh, you maybe shouldn't have said that. But we'll get more into that um, next week. But very quickly, because I want to talk about it. Our fun story this week. Ernest Shackleton's HMS Endurance, which sank in 1915, was discovered like almost completely intact off the coast of Antarctica. And like, first of all, there's a couple things on this. One, it's... So this, whatever, this was an expedition that went out to Antarctica. The boat sunk. The The entire crew had to basically escape the boat. They survived for a very long time. Um, and it's this, like, amazing story of bravery and leadership and blah, blah, blah. It's very fun. Whatever. But also, um, two, the two things on this. One, it's amazing that this, like, relic from 1915 has been preserved so well. And it's, it's almost two miles under the surface of the ocean. They found it. They're going to be able to kind of study it and be able to just kind of just just discover all of this like amazing stuff about like the history of the ocean and then two i just want i the the great thing about the story is talking about the saying the name ernest shackleton what an amazing seafarer name what an amazing seafarer name truly like um is there is there a better name for the captain of a boat called the hms endurance like that is a that, that is there's no way that that's a real story. That is a fake story. Like there's just no way that this is not a fictional thing that happened. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it's pretty fun. You should look up the pictures. It's pretty cool and it is extremely well preserved under the ocean, probably because of the water pressure and because of the salt in the water. I don't know. I'm not I'm not an archaeology major. Although I could get an archaeology major friend in here to talk about it more. But that is all I wanted to talk about today. I really speed ran the end of that, the end of that, but this was very fun. I'm glad to be back after my little one week break. We're rested, we're refreshed, we're ready to to take on the world. Um, But anyway, thank you guys so much for being here chatting with me today. If you want to follow the show on social media, Instagram at Sheep Thrills Radio and Twitter is Sheep Thrills GW. I'll be back next Saturday for more of the same nonsense. Um, But with all that being said, have a great weekend, have a great rest of your week, and I will talk to you later.